You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 193 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the story of the woman in the crowd in Mark 5. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Alexis Neal and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hey, Alexis and Victoria. Hey. Hi. So let's let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Um, Alexis, you can go first. Hello, my name is Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, I spend most of my time homeschooling my two sons, uh, but I do also work part-time as an elected official for our small community, uh, and I am by training uh, an attorney, but I don't have a lot of training in um, in the humanities like a lot of the other uh, panelists um, on the podcast have, have had in, uh, in other episodes you may have listened to. So I come from it more of the, the legal education side of things and then currently largely a stay-at-home mom. Thanks, Alexis. Victoria, what about you? Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, by day, I work in engagement at a market research firm. Uh, and uh, for fun, other than this podcast, I like to read and write and play the ukulele. And I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, formerly of the Christian Humanist podcast, which is now on hiatus and currently of the Before They Were Live podcast, uh, which is just starting up its new series. Uh, We live with our two birds, Jerry, named after Gerard Manley Hopkins, and Veronica, uh, so named because people call me Veronica and it makes me upset. Guess which one I named and which one Michael did. <laughs> and I always forget that you play the ukulele. You'll need to do a Zoom sometime so you can entertain my children <laughs> the ukulele. Um, so for myself... I'm, I'm happy to do that anytime. <laughs> lots of silly children's songs. So uh, yeah, let's do it. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so for myself, I'm Marie Haas. I'm a regular participant in this podcast, and I have a PhD in early modern literature, and more recently, a Master of Divinity with a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. I'm currently living in Connecticut with my husband and the three small imps of mischief and destruction who enjoy the ukulele, who are my three sons. The oldest is four, so you can imagine. So let's head into the knowing section of the show. Uh, Let's start off first with quickly talking about our previous experience with the passage that we're talking about today, the story of the healing of the woman in the crowd in Mark 5. Uh, Would anyone like to go first? 
Um, I can. So I don't really have a specific childhood memory of this story. Um, I know that I heard it, but for me, it just kind of, at least my early experiences of it, just kind of blend together um, with all of the other miraculous healings. Um, When you grow up disabled and Christian, uh, you probably, if you're anything like me, grow up with kind of a weird relationship to all of these healing stories, um, because at least when you get old enough to start to internalize a lot of people's like uh, disability as sin metaphors, um, the way people talk about, um, you know, like that that one um, Amazing Grace line, for example, comes to mind. Um, when you start to internalize all of that, you kind of start to feel weird about what that means for your own body and your own theology. Uh, so I, I don't really have any specific young memories of this story other than I knew of it and it kind of was one of that pack of stories for me um, until I hit puberty and then they kind of started giving us a weird extra layer in terms of like menstruation and uncleanness and, you know, a kind of a, another set of related baggage uh, there. So not a lot of specifics, except um, I, I didn't really feel super great about it based on the exposure that I had to it. Yeah, I I definitely had the same sort of experience in terms of it intermingling with all the other Bible stories, all the other miracle stories when I was growing up, though I didn't have the added layer of experiencing uh, the story as a disabled person. Uh, but I I did, uh, I became a little more interested in the story a few years ago when I was, chose the passage for an exegesis paper in the New Testament survey course I was taking um, because it was just interesting to me for how it's so concerned with gender and open to so many interpretations, which we'll get into a few of them here. Um, Alexis, what was your experience? Uh, My experience is not terribly exciting. I don't remember ever not knowing the story. It was part of the New Testament gospel um, stories that I knew. And I didn't have, uh, because I didn't have personal experience with disability, um, I didn't have those additional layers. It was just one of the stories that I that I knew from uh, a healing from from Jesus's ministry. Um, I didn't attach any special significance uh, to it. It was just one, like I said, one of many narratives for me. So I'm excited to talk about it today and and hear um, hear from people for whom it had a different different significance than it had for me. Thanks. Uh, So before we get into discussing um, some of the various interpretations of the passage, um, I wonder if Alexis, you could give us a quick summary of what's going on here in this passage. Sure. So um, our story today takes place fairly early in Jesus' earthly ministry. He's already called his disciples and he's been healing and casting out demons. Um, And... um, yeah, so that's that's where we are so far. The events of Mark 5 uh, do also appear in the other Synoptic Gospels. Um, so if you want to look for cross-references, you can find the same account in Luke 8 and in Matthew 9. 
earlier in the chapter, before we get to uh, the woman we're going to talk about today, we see Jesus calming the storm, uh, demonstrating his authority over nature. And then he casts a legion of apparently terrified demons out of a man. Um, these are the demons that he allows to go into the herd of pigs that then run off, run off a cliff or whatever. Um, this is his uh, demonstrating his authority over the supernatural realm. Um, and so that's where we are in our story. And then on the heels of what we're going to read in, in our story, um, or on the, sorry, on the heels of the, the events of the, the demons being cast out, uh, a synagogue ruler named Jairus approaches Jesus and begs him to heal his 12-year-old daughter, who is ill to the point of death. Our focal passage occurs while they are all en route to Jairus's house. Uh, it's actually a fairly short passage, so I thought I would just go ahead um, and read from verse 24 through 34 um, in the passage. <clears throat> So Jesus went with him, uh, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Um, and then having once again demonstrated in this encounter his authority over sickness, Jesus then proceeds with Jairus to Jairus's house to heal his daughter who has died in the interim. Uh, Jesus raises the girl from the dead, demonstrating his authority uh, over death itself. Uh, so that's kind of where we are with, with Mark 5. Thanks so much. That's such a great uh, way of putting this in the context of... Um what's going on in Mark here, and uh, noting the parallel passages as well. So before we move on to our reading section, where we'll look first at one particular interpretation of this passage, I'll give just a quick overview of the interpretation history. So some of the criticism dealing with this passage in uh, its historical and literary context um, places it just in the context of other healing accounts and in antiquity. But for obvious reasons, this story has lent itself especially to feminist biblical criticism and numerous scholars, including Elizabeth Schusler, Fiorenza, and Marla J. Selvage, have pointed out the relation to purity laws, particularly the purity regulations of Leviticus 15, under which a menstruating woman or a woman who has an irregular flow of blood, who would be called a zava, is considered impure and has to be isolated from others. Her touch is considered infectious, causing anyone she touches to be unclean. And should she have sex with someone, they must be isolated for seven days. So in, in some readings of this passage that focus on purity laws, Jesus seemingly stands against these laws, affirming the woman's non-secluded presence in the crowd and her transgressive touch. Um, however, some other scholars, including Mary Rose D'Angelo and Amy Jo 
Levine have noted that this strand of interpretation seems open to anti-Judaism and celebrating the passage as a story of Jesus overthrowing misogynistic Jewish purity laws in favor of these new, more egalitarian you know, Christian social practices. So some have uh, questioned the centrality of Jewish purity laws, both to this story and to the actual experience of menstruants and zavas at the time of the composition of Mark. Um, and one other point about the interpretation history of this passage is that some scholars have chosen to call the protagonist of the story the woman in the crowd rather than the more common uh, woman with the flow of blood in order to avoid defining her only by her illness or physical condition, which is why uh, we do the same in the title of this episode. And also why I should have said person with a disability rather than disabled person earlier. I apologize for that. Should you person first language. <laughs> um, so now let's go on to our reading section and let's first talk about this one interesting interpretation of this passage which is from an article by Candida R. Moss published in the Journal of Biblical Literature in 2010 titled The Man with the Flow of, of Power, uh, Porous Bodies in Mark 5 um, 25 to 34. Um, so, Victoria, would you uh, give us a quick overview of Moss's main argument here? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So, uh, this essay I thought was really interesting. Um, first, she mentions, as you did, Marie, that, that this passage has um, a pretty deep reception history, um, both in theology and in feminist thought. Uh, and she says that she's going to push beyond previous readings of the passage in several ways. Um, and the two biggest ways that she does that is she connects uh, the passage to Greco-Roman medical thought, um, particularly the medical theories of Galen and Aristotle. Um, which I was already familiar with because of my um, Renaissance PhD. So that was something interesting that I did not expect to encounter in this article. Um, she talks about these theories and how they um, combine a male-female gender continuum with the idea that women's bodies are leaky and porous and imperfect. Uh, so that's that's one thing, one dimension that she's adding um, to the Mark passage. And another thing that she's doing um, is saying that the line from the passage that says power goes out from Jesus when this woman touches him, um, she's saying that that means this woman is taking agency over her condition and that it's actually Jesus's body that is leaky and porous because the power goes out from him. Uh, and so we get a subversion of that application of, of period uh, medical thought. And I'm just going to read a couple of lines uh, from the essay, from the beginning of the essay that... Uh, boil down this argument, and then we can jump in and go a little deeper. Uh, 
I will argue that the bodies of the woman and Jesus parallel each other in the sense that both are porous and leak uncontrollably. When viewed in the context of Greco-Roman models of the body, both the woman and Jesus appear weak, sickly, feminine, and porous. In the case of Jesus, this presentation subverts the dominant medical practices that have failed the woman with the flow of blood. Furthermore, it reverses the traditional association of porosity and weakness, both because Jesus leaks a positive healing power and because this leakage of power points toward his concealed identity, uh, and she means there his concealed divine identity. Thanks so much, Victoria. That's a great summary of the central argument of this um, of this essay. Um, so let's talk about this a little bit. Um, what are, what were some of your reactions to this? I know Victoria, you mentioned the whole humoral theory thing. That was so sort of comfortable to me as well to encounter leaking leaky women in this article, um, as well as in you know the Shakespeare scholarship and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to, to be transported back to graduate school um, quite so powerfully when I was prepping for this episode. Um, but it was it was great to just be like, oh, Galen, oh, Aristotle, oh, I know all of this. Um, yeah, so that and and to have it used in such a different way, it, it was kind of like, you know, when you see someone uh, in the grocery store who you know from work where it's like, things that live in two different parts of your brain suddenly exist in the same space and you're like, wait, what's happening? That's kind of what reading this article felt like. Like I, I got graduate <laughs> school in my theology and was like, what? But it was cool. Well, um, one thing I really love about this argument, um, well, of course, one thing that I love about it is that you could see it as, a, as assigning this kind of trans femininity to Jesus, um, which is always great to find that. Um, but I also like how um, this kind of argument that she's making could be a counter to how you could read the story as uh, privileging heteronormativity, because I always I like to look at passages from a queer theology point of view, of course. Um, so and when you when I look at this from a queer theology perspective, you, it's easy to see how um, Mark five could be read as upholding oppressive binaries, um, as this triumphant restoration of like heteronormative reproductive capabilities, because you have it, of course, sandwiched with this passage with the 12 year old girl. Um, and you have that girl and the woman both occupying these non reproductive positions that could be read as sort of queer for that reason. So they're both sort of excluded from their proper place as reproductive women, um, the 12 year old girl would be on the point of entering childbearing age. Um, and the woman uh, presumably is not reproductive due to her flow of blood, which is usually understood as uh, gynecological. Um, so they're both excluded from this natural order and they're both restored to it at the same time. And uh, even since the restoration is accomplished by uh, this emission from the body of a man into the body of a woman, which puts a stop to vaginal bleeding, you could see it as a kind of symbolic impregnation because that kind of stop to bleeding happens all the time, right? Um, so you could certainly see a heteronormative logic behind both miracles uh, with that 
norm normative reproductive order being such of such paramount importance to God that this potentially queer site occupied by the woman has to be obliterated through the excess of divine power. Um, so definitely you could read it in a kind of negative way as uh, reinforcing these multiple intersecting binary systems um, where one term is considered innately superior to the other, like, you know, male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, ability, disability, purity, impurity. Um, so I think that recognizing that kind of potential and, and how the story could be read is important. But what I like with Moss's reading is that it offer, offers this other option um, as you have the woman's body sort of becoming hardened and masculine. And she points out perhaps even uh, non-reproductive uh, while Jesus's body is figured as and remains soft and feminine, and you don't necessarily have this triumphant return to a natural reproductive order. Um, and if you focus on the divine in the story as transgressing these boundaries of inside and outside of male and female, you could use the story to then question God's alignment with upholding that kind of natural order in, um, in the first place. Sorry, I went on <laughs> a little long. I got excited. <laughs> No, I mean I I like that too. I the part where um the part where I I kind of felt like Moss might have been going just a teeny weeny weeny bit too far is that for me, I mean I I understand why she's aligning Jesus with this kind of masculine side of the binary. But when I think about incarnational theology, I, I think of Christ's body as, um, you know, while it's gendered male, I, I think of incarnational power as being kind of so much more beyond those man-made labels. I, it didn't quite sit right with me because, I mean, of, of course, um, Jesus's miraculous power can't be contained just by cultural notions of maleness like of course it's bigger than that um but I did I mean I loved um I loved everything Moss's reading had to say about the woman taking back agency and power and I I'll I'm sure I'll talk more later about like what that meant to me as um as a person with a disability but i we haven't let Alexis talk, and we should do that. Well, well I don't know that Alexis has all that yes. much to contribute, um, not having done as much thinking or reading um, with regard to disability um, or some of the other topics that you guys have mentioned. My my initial response to this was basically just not not necessarily disagreement but misgivings to say hey i want to make sure none of this is bumping up against um the dual nature of christ in a way that undermines orthodoxy um and i i don't know that it has to be um you know we, we see elsewhere in the new testament tensions between uh christ's divinity and his humanity with regard to his knowledge grows and nurture and, ad and admonition of the lord and all these different things um but um, specifically with some of the language that she uses that implies a loss of volition. Um, and I just, I, I would want to think some more about that and maybe read some other interpretations about that because um, certainly I think 
Jesus experiences physical porosity. His body leaks sometimes just by virtue of being a human body. I think he was sick sometimes, exhausted sometimes, needed sleep. So other virtues of physical um, humanity would be present. Uh, But the porosity that Moss is contemplating here is specifically a porosity related to his divinity, a leaking of his divine healing power. Um, And I I get where you, you get there from the plain language of the text. But I want to be careful to interpret scripture in a manner that is consistent with other scripture. And I have misgivings about the conclusion that Jesus's humanity causes him to lose control over aspects of his divinity. So I don't know how orthodoxy shakes out on this issue, whether a diminishment of control could be an attribute of humanity that he could voluntarily take on without undermining his dual nature. Um, but I just, that, that was sort of the part that gave me pause. So without taking any kind of a firm stance on it, I, I'm saying that whatever's going on in the passage, whatever Jesus's experience is with regard to this healing, whatever uh, agency the woman is supposed to be, um, exercising, he is still fully God. He is still fully man. Always end of sermon. I, I don't know that Moss is saying that he's not though, right? Like I, because he he knows that the power goes out of him. I guess I I wasn't necessarily fully equating power with divinity. I mean, obviously Christ has power because Christ is divine, but I I wasn't really reading that as his divinity leaving his body. I I guess I would say like he's allowing the power to flow from him. Like he could stop it if he wanted to. I don't know. Not that that's right. the passage, but I, I guess I that that's an interesting point, and I didn't quite think of it that way. Yeah, my my concern is less on the fact that the power leaves him, and more if if it is implied that he is not in control of it, then I would want to to sort of lean into that of like, hey, what what does it look like for for Jesus not to be having self control in whatever aspect of his self we're talking about and i think sometimes we do see in that he he doesn't necessarily seem to be exercising sovereignty over uh maybe every aspect of his person physically i just i i don't know if it means something different when you're talking about aspects of his person that would not exist in a regular human like the ability to heal um does he can he relinquish self-control there? Do we run into problems if Jesus is not able to control his own power? Though that was sort of the language that 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 gave me pause. And I don't think that she was trying to make that argument. I just I think it's possible sometimes to inadvertently transgress you know, the dual nature of Christ because it's super complicated and it doesn't exist anywhere else in anything. So we don't always know how those two things intertwine and bump up against each other. So it wasn't so much a no, I disagree with you as it was, hey, as long as we're still agreed on these foundational principles, I'm willing to have this conversation. But like the foundational principles are the ones that that I don't sacrifice. And right. if this requires that, then I'd have to disagree. But it may not. I don't know that, like you said, I don't think she's necessarily taking um, a, a position that is opposed to that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, definitely something to think about. I hadn't really thought about that point. But what you're, as you're talking, that makes me think, wonder about um, like how much the divine embrace of humanity through God's love entails some kind of uh, choice to lose control. Like you think of the image of 
God seeding space and God's self to create space for creation um, to exist as you could you could see God's love as a kind of loss of control I don't know <laughs> um, and God's creative impulse <laughs> but uh, yeah that's a whole big thing um, but oh but in terms of um, Jesus's divinity one thing that doesn't answer your question Alexis but that's related to his being fully divine uh, that I like about Moss's argument is that it sort of implicitly places Jesus as in, in the way that he figures the divine as a body that would be culturally coded as feminine and disabled um, so you're thinking about God the disabled um, it's it's a great image yeah I for obvious reasons, like can't really stop thinking about the implications of that. Um, I've I've spoken a lot, probably too much. Sorry, listeners and fellow panelists, um, about the fact that um, the primacy of incarnational theology is one of the things that um, led really strongly to my becoming a Catholic. Um, several years ago. And so I think a lot about the incarnation and about um, physicalizing the sacraments and what that means for me um, as a person who is more embodied um, or more consciously embodied than than other people. And, and this idea that um, not only the idea that Jesus um, made it a point to be an embodied deity, but Moss's idea that um, Jesus's physical body has these kind of, um, or could be a disability coded to, to use a, um, a gin alpha phrase. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about that. Um, if I think that I agree with it, um, I, I do think that it, its implications are, are rather powerful, though. Can I ask, just because not having done um, the same work that you guys have done in, in these fields, can you explain for me the difference between an illness and a disability or an injury and a disability? At what point something, are they the same? Does something become a disability at some point? When you look at an account of a healing, do you distinguish between whether it's a healing of a disability as opposed to a healing of an illness and how? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I, I, so I will tell you what I think, and then um, I'll let Marie chime in. Um, so disability theory uh, distinguishes and, and kind of disability studies um as far as I know, both inside and outside of the church, um, part of that distinction is about time. Um, chronic illness is now thought of as under the disability umbrella by most disability studies folks. Um, so like if you um, have something like lupus or uh, fibromyalgia, you are considered disabled by most of the community. Um, obviously, not everyone thinks the same, but in general, people with chronic illness are considered disabled. Um, people who you would think of as mentally or physically um, disabled, long-term conditions are uh, are considered disabled. Um, so 
like I, I would say that most of the miraculous healings we see in the Bible are um, of disabled people, um, people who are are called blind and and lame. Um, those would be disabilities. Um, I actually don't know if leprosy would count under that modern umbrella or not. But presumably someone like Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever and we're not given information about it having been a long-standing condition that wouldn't, that wouldn't really be thought of as being a, a healing regarding a disability. I wouldn't say so. No, I mean, but I, I don't know. I'm I, this is one person's opinion. Sure. I, I mean, I, I have, experience by virtue of being disabled, but I, I am not, you know, the authority on all, uh, on all disability. Absolutely. We are not a monolith, so I don't know. You certainly have more knowledge of the field than I have. And your, um, those distinctions you mentioned between illness and disability makes, makes sense for me. Um, I think viewing the woman in the crowd as having a disability, according to the culture in which she's presumed to be moving. I would uh, also say um, something that I should have said before um, that I think the article gets at is um, something is a disability if there is a barrier to cultural and communal participation because of it. Um, if, if there's an accessibility gap um, based on whatever condition you're dealing with, um, that's a disability. I think but both in, in terms of this article and in terms of um, general disability studies kind of frame of mind. W wouldn't you say, Marie, that accessibility has something to do with the label? Yeah, which is why I'm thinking um, if you're looking at the woman as being culturally like isolated um, due to her physical condition, that's sort of why you would consider this to be a disability due to that accessibility issue, her inability to fully participate in, um, you know, her society due to their view of <laughs> her condition. Which is in interesting because I was looking at the different conditions of men and women that Jesus heals. Um, and, and, you know, we don't, we don't see, um, a woman who is described as blind. We don't see, um, uh, you know, there, there is a woman who is described as, as sort of having some kind of, she, she can't move her body. She is described as being crippled, but it's specifically because of an evil spirit. So she's, she's really um, under the deliverance from spiritual attack, spiritual possession, you know, in that category. Um, you know, you have men who are, you know, they have their mobility is affected. They are unable to speak. They're unable to see leprosy, whatever, whatever that, however that is categorized. Um, don't see leprous women. The women are plagued by fever, this gynecological condition or evil spirits from what I saw. So that was an interesting distinction in the, the kinds of conditions that were, that were presented. Um, and, of the ones that we see, the only one who's who's delivered physically 
that could be described based on what I'm, I'm hearing you say as having a disability specifically, unless you're willing to include like the demon possession, because it would certainly have those ostracized, not able to interact with society in the same way, all those things. So you could, I think, make an argument for it there, but it's not just a physical condition because of the, the spiritual element. But the only one who is potentially under that umbrella of having a disability is this woman, because the other ones are Peter's mother-in-law with a fever, um, Jairus's daughter is sick with something, ultimately dies and is uh, is brought back to life. Um, so I think she might be our only example that would fit into that category. And I didn't do an exhaustive search, so I may have missed something. Um, and also she is specifically referred to as daughter and that that particular form of address is not present in any of the other um, healings that we see um, with the women although some of those take place off screen like Mary Magdalene is delivered off screen we just know that it happened we don't see it happen but anyway just it was just an interesting distinction to see that that we don't see a woman who can't see and a man who can't see like the conditions themselves are are different well Moss at least gestures to that point, right? She she talks about kind of the um, the reception history of this Bible passage and the difficulty of people to see this woman as like she says there are readings that see her as disabled and there are readings that see her as a woman, but there aren't really a lot of readings before this one that see her as a disabled woman. And I I think. Um, your your kind of mm-hmm. recitation of um, of the other healings um, could could point to that as well that that we we don't get a lot of those um, intersectional pictures because I I can't I I can't think of any other women that would fit that and um, the only other healing that I can think of off the top of my head that really hammers home um, the isolation. Uh, kind of accessibility piece is the um, the man who gets lowered through the paralyzed man who gets lowered through the roof. Right. Well, and it, it, mm, yeah, which is also in a huge crowd. Well, and it occurs to me as you say that too. Like all of the other conditions that we see healed are conditions that could be experienced by men or women. This mm-hmm. is the only condition that we see that it is necessary for her to be a woman in order to be afflicted in this way. Um, right, the condition itself is, is inherently gendered. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, you know, there's no. And stigmatized for that gendered reason. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. We don't see any uniquely male um, conditions that are, that are healed. Um, just, just uh, this is the, this is the only one that has that specific limitation. Yeah, though, again, we're not entirely sure about how much she would have been actually isolated due to, like, purity laws. Um, It's not actually mentioned in the the passage itself, so that's kind of still up for debate. (laughs) Right, although some of the commentaries I was looking at pointed out that some of of her reluctance to come forward may have been related to the fact that she wasn't really supposed to be in that like bumping up against other people <laughs> uh, in that press of people, um, if she was supposed to be excluded, that part of the shame and the and the reluctance to come forward could be because she knew, like, not only should she, you know, according to those rules, not have touched the teacher, but also is bumping up against and rendering ceremonially unclean of, of um, all the people who are in contact um, 
with her. Um, so, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that, I don't yeah, know how so, that actually worked out in practice. So, so like reading the purity laws as in place and being enforced would, uh, does contribute to a portrait of the woman as being kind of transgressive and active and powerful and coming forward, uh, in the crowd and touching Jesus. So I, I do like that aspect. Again, I'm not sure how far to take the purity laws thing, but reading her as being like transgressive in that way does for me have like a personal appeal um, looking at it from another kind of queer perspective. It's easy to take this story as having a kind of emotional resonance with um, experiences, uh, some people's experiences of coming out in some Christian communities. Because um, like you could see the woman as having this condition that codes her as inferior it's connected with shame and isolation, contamination of anyone she's intimate with, um, and it could stigmatize her as too sexually voracious or unnatural, um, since uh, Hippocratic medicine thought that um, an, that kind of sexual appetite could be a cause of excessive flow of blood in a woman. So all of that sounds like super familiar. She's tried to change herself, and some queer Christians are told to change themselves, and she's reluctant to reveal herself like a closeted queer person in some Christian communities. So she has to gather her courage to approach Jesus, facing the possibility of rejection. Um, and when he asks who touched him, she does reveal herself, and she's fully accepted instead of shamed. Um, so that kind of emotional resonance of the story. I mean, it has it has just a personal connection to my experience of coming out as a bisexual or pansexual person in Christian communities. Like that took a lot of uh, <laughs> fear and trembling. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure it did, and and I'm I'm always happy to hear. Um, when when people find themselves in um, in readings of scriptures like this, uh, but I I do want to also say uh, pretty much everything you said about um, reading this passage from a queer perspective is always already true from a disability perspective, mm -hmm. um, like yep. shame of of bodies, shame of bodies in sexual situations. Um, the kind of cultural assumption about the disabled body is either asexual or kind of freakishly sexual. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think not not that I'm trying to invalidate that experience of the text, um, especially if it gives you comfort. But I think, um, you know, but both of those things can can kind of simultaneously exist. Oh, and I think definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying that should be anybody else's uh, reading necessarily. I'm just uh, pointing out that the uh, the text is open to lots of like emotional resonances and, and for readers. Although her 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 body does change. It is changed as a result of her encounter with Jesus. So I think that's an interesting yeah. um, like it, it is not. Like she does not continue as as she came to him. She is not. She's not unchanged. I did think it was interesting that Jairus's daughter is twelve and she's had the flow of blood for twelve years. Um, and I mm -hmm. I've seen a couple of places that the the age of twelve could be significant because of you know sort of approaching adulthood, approaching fertility, all of those things. But I thought it was really interesting that she had um, her her 
her condition had also had that same period of time. And I, I'm always a little bit leery of biblical numerology, um, good Southern Baptists and I uphold the inerrancy of scripture. And sometimes those two things can seem like they're fighting a little bit. So I'm always a little like hold it a little bit at arm's length. But what I could find about um, the biblical numerology of the number 12, it's a big one. Like it's one of the big ones that pops up a lot. Uh, one of the things it can signify is authority, which I thought would fit really well with the themes of the passage already, where we've seen Jesus exercising authority over nature, over a legion of demons over, we're going to see him exercise authority over death. And then in this passage over illness, um, it would be really interesting to say like, Hey, this is him exercising authority from the onset of the illness until it's termination, until it's healing um, and both life and death for this girl as well. If, if that could be part of what we're seeing and part of why those two periods like match up, like why has she been like the whole time Jairus's daughter has been alive? She's been bleeding. Like why? <laughs> Sort of, I was like, oh, those, I wonder why those things are the same. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that's why. I don't know if that's just, you know, God and his sovereignty ordained that it would be 12 so that it could be a symbol of his authority. I don't know. Biblical numerology makes me a little nervous. But I did think that that occurrence of authority was interesting given the pattern that we see in the chapter. That is interesting. And I like, I mean, I knew that they were the same length of time, but I don't think that I put that together. And I, I actually like that. I like this kind of female community that exists in those numbers um, better than the kind of this girl is 12 and on the edge of Menarche reading. Um Particularly if if you think of um, the woman in the crowd as as being ostracized, I like giving her a point of unity with another female figure, if only symbolically. Mm, yeah. And in terms of uh, your point, Alexis, that uh, the woman does change, that is definitely a drawback in like a, an emotional resonance queer liberation theology reading, um, because that would seem to suggest that, you know, that person has to change. And which is something that actually I pointed out in um, the paper that I wrote long ago in that exegesis class, <laughs> I was doing a contrast of these two kinds of queer readings. I said that that kind of emotional resonance reading has to be supplemented by the kind of queer theology reading I mentioned earlier that that points out that the passage can definitely be seen to uphold oppressive binaries. Um, and on that, since we're, we've gone on for a while, we need to get on to the passing on section soon. I did have one, another point of discussion. Um, I wonder what do we make of miracle stories in general in the Bible, of these healing stories? It, do they always kind of uphold these oppressive binaries and point to the need for change in a person with a disability rather than perhaps a need for change in the culture and accessibility surrounding that person? Um, does, this, does the Bible foster a negative view of disability <laughs> or are there, are there more positive uh, things we can see? My answer is mostly questions, and then and just be having not studied this field is just what what does a positive view of disability look like? And I realized that a significant part of the disabled uh, experience, the experience of persons with disabilities, has to do with accessibility um, and with interactions with 
others, but I assume perhaps wrongly, that some of it also has to do with concrete realities, with physical discomfort, with, with any number of things that aren't just a matter of addressing accessibility. And so I was a little surprised by this question, not having grown up dealing with uh, uh, with disability sort of firsthand or, or even in my immediate circle. What What is the loving thing to have done when confronted with someone who cannot see? What is the loving thing to have done when confronted with someone with uh, with a withered hand, um, with with whatever the, this particular situation is, um, certainly there are things that I, I can understand that are better or worse responses for society. But if if someone who is possessed of the ability to alter that situation is is the argument is and I, I genuinely don't know is the argument that the more merciful thing to do is to say no no change to this circumstance i mean that depends on who you ask sure um i one social and cultural issue that speaks to that um is i'm i'm not sure if you're aware of the uh, kind of hot button position of the cochlear implant in the deaf and hard of hearing communities. Yeah, that's um, sort of something I was thinking about here. Yeah, right. Um, so it is a very charged issue, and sure. there there are um, deaf and hard of hearing people that reject others who decide to get the cochlear implant because that is seen as to use a super overplayed kind of meaningless term um, that is seen as kind of selling out up deaf culture, which is in many ways its own separate culture with its own language and traditions and history and norms and all of those things. Um, so, so there are situations where, um, you know, that that's a very charged action Um me personally, if I could wave a magic wand and not be disabled and have so much less to deal with and carry around physically and metaphorically, would I do it? Yes, I would. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that existing in a disabled body has given me lots of stuff that I don't think I would have otherwise. Like I, I think a lot of disabled people, and again, my experience is one experience and we are not a monolith and I'm not speaking for every disabled person. Um, I, I think that lots of us will tell you that, um, that the notion of disability gain um, which is is a term that was first talked about um, theologically in terms of um, St. Teresa of Avila, um, that you can kind of become a more spiritually refined kind of person by um, participating in the suffering of Christ in ways that able-bodied people aren't able to. Mm -hmm. um, th things like that... Um, I think ha have kind of complicated my view. Um, I mean, it's it's hard being disabled a lot of the time for accessibility reasons, but also just because like it's hard 
being in pain most of the time you're awake, um, just practically. So that was a very long-winded, complex answer, and I hope it was helpful. No, it, it definitely was. Yeah. It definitely yes. was helpful. I think, because I, I think about, I mean, I, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, right? We, we see, even outside of the issue of disability, we see the sanctifying nature of suffering, um, which is not to say that suffering is good, but that a good God uses suffering for the good of his people because he uses all things for the good of his people. And so I think it makes perfect sense that physical, the physical suffering inherent in particular experiences of disability would would have a similar effect of being one of the all things worked together for the good of those who love God. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I could see it varying depending on the, the disability. I don't know where sort of special needs fits on the disability and some of the, the autism spectrum stuff, but I, I know people who, who have kids on the spectrum and obviously their response to would I wave a wand and have my child no longer be on the spectrum is more complicated because of issues of personality and the particular kinds of um, uh, neurodivergence experiences that their kids have. Um, but someone like Johnny Erickson Tata, I'm, I'm assuming does not feel like she will be sad if her resurrected body includes full mobility. Um, so, uh, and, and, and a relief from whatever pain is attended with her, her condition as well. So that, that's really helpful. And I certainly understand that the different people reach different conclusions. And I, I was at least a little bit familiar with, uh, the, the way that, that deaf culture has a, a particularly unique, um, take on some of these things. So thank you for, for walking me through your, your experience of it. It didn't mean to turn it into like a 101 <laughs> disability theology, but I was curious because that question did take me a little bit by surprise. Um, no, yeah, no, I, that's, um, no, that's a, that it's a good, um, a good comment. And I, I will say, um, in the past, I don't know, five years, maybe, um, five or 10 years, we've really seen, um, disability theology enter the mainstream much more. There are more books, there are more blogs, there are more, um, kind of prominent, um, theologians doing this kind of intersectional work. And it's, it's been really great, um, to, to see and, and to feel represented by. Yeah, though, regardless of if we see the people in the story as like wanting to be healed, which we do see the people in the story as wanting to be healed usually, right? Uh, the stories themselves like have definitely been misused in oppressive ways, like to say, well, this woman had faith and that faith made her well. Why aren't you well? Like my mother, when she had, she had a chronic illness for many years and people in the church would be like, well, what? You just don't have enough faith? Oh my goodness, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so there's the potential for that kind of misuse of these stories here. Um, I wonder if we could get, find another kind of positive aspect to the stories besides um, the obvious uh, positive of the people seeking healing, um, gaining the healing um, in the way that Jesus interacts with the people. Um, I think there could be something there. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, he takes time and recognizes their humanity um, in, in most cases he heals them by touching them and 
and just that, like the the idea that Christ touches these incomplete, malformed, diseased, um, in in some cases, you know, uh, supposed representation of um, you know externalized sin. All of those. The fact that Christ, in His divinity, um, touches these bodies um, is is really powerful. Um, I think. Yeah, it makes it all the more powerful that the woman so actively claims that touch for herself, and it's affirmed by Jesus. Like he not only touches, but allows himself to be touched. <laughs> well, what do you think about, and I, I meant to ask this question earlier um, when we were kind of talking about the power transfer, um, the fact that she doesn't actually touch his body, she touches his cloak and the miracle still happens. I, I have always kind of assumed with absolutely no textual backing, and this is just 100% emotionally driven assumption on my part um that she touches his cloak um because of proximity reasons but also because she's too nervous to like go all the way and and try to to touch his body what do we think about that hmm i guess i was just imagined her like coming up behind him (laughs) i don't know well, yeah, I, I, it's also like get a, to. <laughs> a distance thing, I think, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, I mean, it's... Are... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> oh, just that there are, like, uh, parallels in antiquity with people touching people's cloaks and robes, so that might be part of the reason that detail is included in Mark. But, yeah, Alexis? Well, I was going to say two two things that come to mind, sort of like what you said, Victoria. You know, if if part of the, the thought is that the, she's trying to do this surreptitiously, she feels that it is transgressive, right? A touch of a cloak is more likely to go unnoticed than a touch of an act of the actual person, although in, in oppressive people, maybe not. But but I could see, you know, I can get away with a touch of a cloak in a way that maybe I can't get away with touching the skin. It also reminds me, the, the language reminds me of the the... Oh, what is what is her? What is the woman? I don't remember which how she's described. The woman who says that 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 they can eat the crumbs that fall from the table. The dogs can eat the crumbs from the, that fall from the table. That kind of language of if I can just even the crumbs, like even the crumbs, even the the even the cloak is enough. Um, and I I when I was reading this and thinking about all of the 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 flow of power and everything, I was reminded of and I forget where I heard it. Basically, Jesus never seems to heal the same person twice, like the same way twice. Um, so sometimes it's mud and it's spit and sometimes it's uh, actual touching and sometimes it's just making a statement. And um, and it seems like I, I've heard people exposit that saying part of the, the point there is not to have people invested in the method, right? This is the way that you get healed. You have to two steps forward and then do a little hop and then turn around and put some mud on your eyes and this is how you get healed. Instead, it is, he is he is the source of healing. And so he does it different every time so that it's not just whatever the magic spell yeah. is. And so if part of the idea here is she is expressing faith in him and it doesn't matter what action she takes toward that, whether it was touching the robe or whatever the thing was that was the way that she thought she could take hold of Christ. Um, but that he is the object, he is the the source of the healing. Um, and that maybe that's, that's why it works. It's not because, because uh, one of the, one of the commentaries was, a, I don't remember who it was, was saying like, look, everybody else is also touching Jesus and nobody else seems to be healed. 
and she's touching a bunch of other people and doesn't seem that doesn't seem like the only people who have the connection in this press of people are these two and the reason seems to be it right says her faith like the fact that she is reaching out for christ in faith um and that's that's why and it's not necessarily because you could just take his robe off and toss it to whoever um but because she's reaching for christ in faith and therefore the mechanism is kind of not the point i don't know i don't know but i think it's tricky because it's it is it is not what we expect that's a really good point about healing happening a lot of different ways i like that yeah i think we're pretty much out of time now though so are there any last uh comments or topics uh before we move on to the passing on section all right let's move on to our passing on section we will give our recommendations for further reading um listening or viewing for our listeners alexis would you start us off Sure. My recommendation is a book called A Brief Theology of Periods, Yes, Really, by Rachel Jones. Uh, it is, as the title suggests, a very brief book. It's just a hundred and some pages. Um, I wish it was longer. I would totally read a lengthy theology of periods. But um, it was, I just read it this week because um, I'd been meaning to, and this podcast gave me an excuse to to get that knocked out. Um she writes in a way that I find engaging and, and accessible uh, and talks about some of the things like the Leviticus passage um, that you mentioned, Marie, uh, and includes a, a small section on um, the story that we talked about today. Um, but I just I thought it was an interesting uh, an interesting book, even though I wish it were longer, but it would be a good jumping off point for further discussion and study. Thanks. That's so fitting to this <laughs> this episode. What about you, Victoria? Uh, so I am going to recommend um, a book that I'm pretty sure I've recommended before on this podcast. Um, and I uh, I interviewed the author a couple of years ago on um, Christian Humanist Profiles. And it is um, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, uh, Disability, Justice, and the Church by Amy Kenney. Um, I cannot express to you, like, I, I can't overstate how much I love this book um, and how much it made me feel seen and heard. Um, my conversation with Amy was great, too, so I'm sure we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, a couple of great things about the book. One, um, every chapter begins uh, with a kind of jokey top 10 list. Um, one of them is... Um, the top 10 homeopathic remedies uh, people at church have suggested to her to, to heal her disability, for example. Um, it's, it's really funny um, and interesting introduction to disability theology as well. There's um, a really groundbreaking reading of um, Jacob wrestling with the angel um, that kind of blew a lot of things open for me. Um, but if you're interested in um, kind of half memoir, half theology of disability, or not even half, a third memoir, a third theology of disability, and a third um, really practical ways for the church body um, to support its disabled members, uh, I would recommend it. My Body is Not a Prayer Request by Amy Kenney. That sounds great. I'll have to look that up. 
Um, for my recommendation, I'll recommend uh, an essay by Carol R. Fontaine. Uh, it's a feminist essay on disability in the Bible, just providing a brief over overview. It's titled Disabilities and Illness in the Bible, a Feminist Perspective and a Feminist Companion to the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. Um, one of the things that she does in the essay at one point is talk about what we were just mentioned briefly earlier, the way that Jesus interacts with the people that he heals and um, contrasts his actions with what people's present-day experiences might be with modern uh, medical facilities. So she says that he's notable for many of the things he does not do, like not performing painful tests on one already suffering, not indulging in accusing his victims. He's not interested in apportioning blame. He does not disdain to touch the person seeking healing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, he doesn't exclude those with previously existing conditions. <laughs> he seeks no payment except the amendment of life where necessary, and he takes no personal credit for his actions, ascribing it to divine power. Um, so that, that's just a brief quote from her essay, but um, if you want a quick overview, that's a good one to read. All right, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison for Alexis Neal and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the legacy of Kathy Geiswhite. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things Love. <laughs>